0: Exodus chapter 3. Moses is not yet aware of all of the the things that are going to befall him in his coming life. Much is yet to happen in this man's life, but at this point in time he finds himself doing what he's always done, tending the sheep. We're going to read the first six verses of Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw through though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for your word this morning in this intriguing passage. We thank you for the life and work of that great man, Moses. We thank you for your work in him. We thank you, Father, we come to that time now where the word is open to us, and we pray for your servant, Ernie, that as he opens the pages and digs into his heart and into his research, into his study, that he will bring to us words that we will take, listen to, reflect upon And Lord, speak to us, we pray, through your servant this morning. Give him strength. Give him your words, we pray. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Ernie. Well,
1: good morning, everyone. You're probably wondering why I chose that particular reading to introduce a sermon on the Last Supper. I did it for two reasons. The words that God said to Moses, take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. As I've been preparing this sermon, I've been increasingly conscious that we are treading on holy ground. There have been times as I was reading when the hairs on the back of my neck stood up because I had a kind of shiver at the excitement of what God did through the symbolism of the Passover meal. After God had told Moses to take off his sandals, he announced that he was the God of your father, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. And Moses was awestruck. Jesus, during that Passover meal, demonstrated the character of God in a way that I hadn't quite understood before, but which is so utterly amazing. I want to ask you to do something which may seem a little bit silly, but please humor me. There is purpose behind it. I'd like you to reach down undo the laces, take your shoes off and put them to one side to feel the carpet under the soles of your feet and say to yourself, I'm treading on holy ground. This is the second in our series of final encounters with Jesus, the Last Supper. We're going to be looking at four scriptures, Luke 22:14 to 18, then John 13:2 to 15, then going back to Luke and picking up the story in verse 19, and finally looking at a verse from Matthew 26, verse 30. No need to turn to those things. They're going to be on the screen. And we will be reading them as we go through the narrative. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Jesus eagerly desired this meal. He'd been looking forward to this as a crucial point in his ministry. But why is he talking about the fulfillment of the Passover? Because the Passover essentially was a meal of rem- memorial, uh, a memorial of the way in which God told Moses to have the people sacrifice a lamb and paint its blood on the lintel and doorposts of their house and eat the meal standing up ready to go because the angel of death was coming over Egypt and was going to kill all the firstborn sons of the Egyptian families and he would pass over the houses of the Hebrews because of the sacrifice of the lamb. And this meal was a festival in perpetuity to remember that event. But it was also a festival that looked forward. It looked forward because the lamb simply preserved a few people in Egypt at that particular time, but God was going to send another lamb, his son, to die for the whole world and all of us would be able to be saved from death, freed from slavery, because of what he was going to do. And so the Passover was looking forward to this very event that was happening this very day. Remember the Jewish days began at 6 p.m. at sunset and went on until 6 p.m. the following day. So this day while they're eating the Passover is the same day that Jesus was crucified. For us it's the, the day before, the evening before. But to the Jew, it was the very day on which the Passover was eaten that Jesus died for our sins this meal Jesus eagerly desired to share because it was the turning point between the old covenant and the new between the Passover lamb and the lamb of God who died for the sins of the world. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus was saying, I'm not going to have another drink of wine after this meal until the kingdom of God is established. What was special about this particular cup? Well, we need to understand that the Passover meal was not just a meal, it was actually a kind of liturgy. It's called the Seder in Hebrew. And the liturgy was very important. It revolved around four cups of wine. The first one was called the Kiddush, the cup of sanctification. As the men reclined at table... The women would bring water and towels. I'm sorry to be sexist, but this was the way it happened. Um, they would bring water, and the men would ritually cleanse themselves by washing their hands in the water. And then, after they had washed their hands on the outside for sanctification, they would take a drink from the Kiddush, the wine to metaphorically or symbolically cleanse them within. The second cup was served very soon after that. It was called the Majid. Literally, that means the word preacher. But the Majid was the name given to the host of the Passover meal. He was called the preacher because he was responsible to make sure that the ritual was carried out exactly as it was laid down, according to, first of all, the, the liturgy laid down by Moses but then all of the traditions of the fathers that had been accumulated over the years since then. And this was like a cup of welcome. The the Majid, the the host of the, the feast, would take the wine and distribute it to all of the guests, and this would be the wine they would drink as they ate the appetizers. The women would bring in the appetizers, lay them on the table, and they would eat the appetizers as they drank the Majid cup. It was like a cup of welcome from the host, but also, if you like, drinking a toast, a thank you from those who were uh, eating at table to the one who had welcomed them there. When the appetizers are over, there's a period of questions when the youngest person present would ask the Majid why is this night different to every other night? And the Majid would recount the Exodus. And then when the questions were over, the third cup was served. It was the Beakat Hamazon, the grace. And this preceded the saying of grace, the, the bl- asking God to bless the food and thanking him for its provision. And the final cup right at the end of the feast, when the the food was all over, was called the Hallel, the cup of praise. We come back to that later. Jesus took the cup, the Majid cup, the cup of welcome, gave thanks, and he said, take this and divide it among you. I'm not going to drink again after this meal until the kingdom of God comes Now we move over to John's Gospel, chapter 13, to pick up the story at that point. The evening meal was in progress. They were already eating the appetizers. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God So, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel round his waist. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and yet he just said, I've eagerly desired to eat this meal before I suffer. Jesus had been given the power over all things. He could like that, Call upon legions of angels. He could, like that, change the circumstances, avoid the suffering, step away from this terrible 24 hours that he was going to live through. And yet, he chose to go through with the torture, to go through with the unjust travesty of a trial to go through the most painful death you can imagine. He knew that the Father had put all things under his power and yet he chose to do that. Why? For you and for me. He had us in mind when he did it. This, this was God demonstrating how much he cares for you. But there's more, there's more. Jesus knew he'd come from God and was returning to God. He was indeed the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. And for that reason, he got up from the meal, took off his best suit, and wrapped a towel around his waist. He knew he'd come from God and was returning to God... So what he did was a more powerful demonstration than the words that God said to Moses through the burning bush when he said, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This was a statement of the character of God. He took off his fine clothes, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. How embarrassing. These men had come to this secret location, this upper room, to eat the Passover with their Lord and Master. And they probably eyed one another up and down. Who is actually going to take the servant role and wash our feet. And nobody did. So they reclined at table with dirty feet. What an insult to the host. And the host himself took off his fine clothes, wrapped a towel around his waist, and came and washed each man's feet. Remember, Judas is here Jesus washed the feet of his betrayer. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you'll never wash my feet. This is the strong man, the one who is perhaps embarrassed by the situation. But he cannot bear to have this great respected rabbi whom he loves to sully himself by, by washing these dirty feet that have all the, the, the dirt of the road and everything else on them. But Jesus answered him, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Friends, I want us to take those words away with us this morning, if we take nothing else from this sermon. The words that Jesus said, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. We can't wash ourselves. But Jesus, humbled himself, came to this earth deliberately to suffer and die that we might be washed. We see the strong man again. Peter, realising that he can't face the prospect of not having a part with Jesus, says, then Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Don't we like to call the shots? You know, it, it doesn't matter that we call Jesus Lord. We still want to tell him how to solve our problems for us. We dictate in our prayers very often. And we feel disappointed when things don't work out the way we expected God was going to work them out. But the reality is that we must live in submission to our Lord. If he isn't our Lord, if we don't submit to his Lordship, then just as much as if we don't let him wash us at all, there's no part that we have in him. Jesus is very gentle with Peter. He loved him. And he knew that Peter was saying these things out of a perverted sense of love. Jesus said, Those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. Do you feel the holy ground that we are walking on here? God demonstrated his character through Jesus, bending down to wash the feet of his disciples. This is the nature of our God, majestic and high, the one who created the furthest stars, the great universe, which is so huge it takes your breath away. The one who created the incredible complexity of the human body. This God loves you enough to stoop down from heaven. He didn't think something to be held on to to stay in the glory of heaven. He came down to earth to live a human life and die a terrible death. And Jesus demonstrated that character by washing his disciples' feet. When he'd finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. We're not going to wash one another's feet this morning, but symbolically, I'd like you to turn to someone near you and put their shoes back on for them. And then... Give them your shoes and allow them to do the same for you. A symbol of what Jesus did, bending low, touching that disreputable part of our body, taking care of our need. uncomfortable isn't it? Uncomfortable bending down in the, the pu- in the rows of chairs and awkward getting to somebody else's feet and getting their shoes to fit on correctly and we have difficulty doing that but sometimes it's even harder to let somebody else do it to us. Let you tie your own <laughs> Ruby let me tie my own laces. Sometimes it's harder to let somebody else minister to you than it is to minister to somebody else. And we need the submission to allow others to show us love and to be ministers in that way. After he'd said all of this and explained what the foot washing was about, demonstrating... The character of God. Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. This is one of those points where I find the hairs on the back of my neck tend to stand out because those words, the disciple whom Jesus loved, are a euphemistic way of John referring to himself. It was inconceivable for a writer of the first century to write about themselves in the first person. And the usual literary way of doing it was to use an expression Which, by which other people would recognize the author and put that expression in place of the word I. You know, I was reclining next to Jesus would be what we would like to read. But what does this tell us? This man who is writing this was not only an eyewitness to the events. He was actually the key player in this next little scene. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple, to John, and he said, ask him which one he means. So leaning back against Jesus, John asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. And then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Extraordinary that Jesus should honour his betrayer. You see the dipping of a piece of bread in the bitter herbs and giving it to one of the guests was a sign of special favour. This is my friend whom I wish to share my bread with. This is someone whom I wish to honour before all of you. And Jesus did that to his betrayer. Not just as a sign to denounce him to John and Peter but as a sign that grace conquers even betrayal so Jesus told him what you're about to do, do quickly no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. But as soon as Jesus had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. We now ride right in to the day of crucifixion. Night has fallen and Jesus, aware that he is being betrayed, is eating the Passover with his disciples. We go back to the Luke account, verse 19 of chapter 22. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, again, I have one of those moments when the hairs on the back of my neck start to feel distinctly uncomfortable because I discovered something which I didn't know before about the Passover ritual. Some two or three years ago, some of us had the privilege of going to the synagogue and sharing in a reconstruction of a Passover meal. We couldn't be present at the actual Passover, but the, Jew, the Jewish community welcomed us to explain what was going on. I remember them telling the story of how this happens in the meal. You see, the bread is not bread such as we have it. It's a matzo. Um, you can buy them in waitros at this time of year, It's like a cracker, and uh, they are flame-grilled and made from a special grain for the Passover, and it says on the box that these are kosher for use at the Passover. And at the meal, the crackers are placed in little piles of three in front of the guests. And at the beginning, before the appetizers are served, the middle matzo is taken out from the three and it's broken in half like this and the biggest half, I'm sorry to uh, whoever's doing the hoovering but (laughs) the biggest half is hidden under the other two matzos hidden to be used like dessert at the end of the meal And this piece is distributed straight away to be dipped in the bitter herbs and eaten with the appetisers at the beginning of the meal. The piece which is hidden is called the afikoman. And it stays hidden underneath the two matzos until the very end of the meal which has a special name in the Seder, the, the liturgy of Passover, it's called the Salfan, the hidden, hidden bread, the hidden truth. Why is it a hidden truth? Well, you see, the word afikoman means I have come. And many rabbis taught that this was a symbol of the messiah psalm 40 the messianic psalm says then i said here i am i have come it is written about me in the scroll the law the prophets the psalms everything speaks about me it's written about me there but now at last i've come and not only have i come i've come to introduce a new covenant not a covenant based on law written with pen and ink on paper. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is written in within my heart. Jesus took the afficlumon. He broke it in little pieces, handed it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. What an important and powerful symbol that is. He was stating clearly as could be, I am the Messiah. I have come, and I take the I have come, the men, and I give it to you because this is my body. And when we take the bread even though it's a different kind of bread, it doesn't matter. We're fulfilling what Jesus gave us in terms of a symbol of what he had done in coming in the body. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. We've already had three cups of wine in this meal. The Kiddush for sanctification, the Majid for welcome, the Birkat Hamazon to give thanks, say a grace and a blessing on the food. And now we come to the fourth cup, the Hallel, the cup of praise. And this is the final act of the Passover. The meal is finished, so it's after supper, Jesus takes the cup, and after he's given thanks, he says, this cup is the new covenant. We've just turned a chapter, a new chapter of history. We have turned from the old covenant to a new covenant, which this very day is going to be sealed in my blood being poured out for you. So remember my death as often as you drink this in memory of me until I come again. So we come to verse 30 of Matthew 26. When they had sung a hymn they went out to the mount of olives. The hymn they sang was the hallel. The same name as the the final cup of the meal. It describes the string of six psalms from 113 to 118. They were sung as one continuous song. And it begins with the word, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. So that's where the name Hallel comes from to describe the three uh, six psalms. The last section before Psalm 118 closes is very familiar to us as Christians. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it's marvellous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. I'm sure that when Psalm 118 was written, the writer did not have in mind that there was one specific day in the whole of history when those words were going to be absolutely true. But that night, as the disciples sang the Hallel at the end of their Passover meal, they said, the Lord has done this, this very day, because this is the day that the builders are going to reject the stone and the Lord is going to make him the cornerstone of the new covenant. The Lord has done it. It's nothing that human beings have done. It hasn't been engineered. It's a miracle. It's marvellous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad